everyone and welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. Today I'm speaking with the president of the Pirate Party, that is Sven Clement. Now he has also been serving in the Luxembourg Chambre des Députés since 2018. And he and his wife Christine welcomed their first child, Mia, just a couple of months ago. Welcome Sven, lovely to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so great to see you in real life. It's been a while, I haven't seen you in ages and since then you've become a father. Yeah, and it was not really a COVID baby because uh, she actually was conceived between the lockdowns. So <laughs> we <laughs> you, don't know. You, you see, we don't need those details. No, but, but, but I'm very happy that she is with us and she's yeah. healthy. And your wife and you seem to be thriving. We are thriving. We are enjoying a young parenthood. Our baby is really a starter baby. We couldn't have asked for more. She's not keeping us up that much. So it's really as a set a starter baby. You are so lucky. You're so lucky with that little girl. And I hear she's already a very well-traveled little girl. Yeah, she enjoys traveling the world and she's already been to three places. She's been to Lisbon when I had to attend a work meeting there. She's been with my wife to Barcelona on an ad hoc trip. Completely crazy story, I have to tell you. And then last week we've been to Greece for a bit of family vacation, which was the first trip officially planned with her but then life plays jokes on you as always oh it always does so tell us about this ad hoc trip to barcelona that was rather <laughs> sudden so yeah we had lunch at home and uh, we had friends over and we were talking about the next vacation and when do we get time to go somewhere and suddenly those friends told us oh yeah by the way we still got vouchers from luxair to travel somewhere wherever we want uh, only caveat we need to take the ticket and the plane before the 31st of October. Imagine that was like a week left of October <laughs> and that was 1pm. And my wife suddenly says, well, I'm on maternity leave. I've got time. Uh, Sven, are you fine if I leave? With oh, Mia. With Mia, obviously. <laughs> and I'd leave you with the dog and the cat. And I was like... Yeah, if you want to, please go ahead. So at 1pm, she had no ticket. At five minutes after five in the evening, she was on a plane with Mia to Barcelona, enjoying a beautiful four-day stay. And I can only congratulate her for her braveness. It is brave. I mean, goodness, to take a two-month-old baby on your own. They are transportable at that age, but they're never easy, even when they grow up, I've, I've found. But nonetheless, she is a brave lady to do that on her own, booking it, just packing it and going within the four hours and being on that plane. Well done to Christine. I can see that you make a, a very strong duo. But like you said, there's no let up in life or on the political front. And what I like about you is you're you don't seem to be frightened to speak your mind. You're quite candid when it comes to speaking to the media. And I appreciate that. And recently in the media, we've seen that our Prime Minister, Xavier Bettel, has been in the spotlight for possible, probable plagiarism in his university degree. The investigation was carried out by reporter.lu and suggested that out of a 56-page dissertation on the possible reform of elections to the European Parliament, only two pages didn't contain plagiarised content. Reporter says that this is confirmed by multiple independent sources. Now, the paper was written 
a long time ago, in 1999, for Bettel's Diplôme d'études approfondies, which is a master's level research degree at the University of Nancy II, which is now known as the University of Lorraine. Now, Bettel's response so far was that he wrote the dissertation, quote, to the best of my knowledge and belief at that time, and admitted that it could have, yes, maybe should have been done differently. So multiple questions here. Firstly, it's easy to attack someone in their absence, which I don't want to do, and one should always assume innocence, but it seems as though he has alluded to the fact that there was plagiarised content. Oh, he admitted it outright. I think his uh, only statement to date is uh, admittance of what he did. Now the question is, what are the consequences of that and how do we deal with politicians and their diplomas? Maybe to to put it in a situation, at that time in 1999, Safi Buttle was already an MP. So it's not that we are judging the student Safi Buttle outside of a political spectrum. He was already an MP. He was running the same year at the beginning of the year for municipal council, for parliament and for the European parliament. So he was running for three separate elections in the same year. He got elected into two of them the National Parliament and the Municipal Council, and he finished a DEA uh, thesis. So I've been in a similar situation at about a similar age, and my only response to that was to not write my master thesis, because I simply got no time to do that. I had to make a choice between being a politician and trying to be close to the citizens and or writing a master thesis. I opted out of the thesis because I thought that helping people in real life and changing the world for better would be more important than my individual thesis. And it can be that I'm right, it can be that I'm wrong, but doing both at the level that you'd expect of somebody running for office, um, it's nearly impossible. So I'm not astonished that Savi Buttle took it, took the easy way when it came to writing that thesis and copy and pasting on 96% of the pages is simply um, too much to be an honest mistake. Yeah, honesty. And I mean, all of this is really about trust. It's all about the word trust. And how important is it that we trust our members of parliament and our prime minister? And how important is this lapse of trust to us as the citizens? Well, currently we are still in the midst of a pandemic of, of a global scale and um, every measure that the politicians take, whether I personally agree with them or not, needs to be communicated in a trustful way. And the problem is once people lose trust in their elected leaders, they don't necessarily continue to follow what those leaders are asking them to do. And at that point we've got not only a trust issue, but we got a public health issue. Once we put into question the trustworthiness of a PM, that puts into question the trustworthiness of the system, which in turn leads to more people not trusting the system. And so it's very important for politicians, especially those in leading positions, to work for their trust, to, to earn the trust of their constituents every day. It's not something that's God-given. It's something that we need to work actively for. And 
if we make mistakes, we need to handle the consequences and deal with those consequences. That's not an easy thing to do. It takes a very long time for trust to be built and a very easy time for it to be broken. Now, we've seen across Europe that other European leaders have faced severe consequences for such things as plagiarization. What should Bettel do? Well, I'm not asking for his resignation because, quite honestly, I don't see who'd replace him at the DP level. The party has aligned itself so clearly behind Savia Buttel that it's very difficult to imagine anybody who'd be untainted to replace him. Claude Maish is um, trying to say that it's not that bad if you are copy and pasting in a scientific dissertation, whereas he is the <laughs> minister for education. <laughs> education. Um, Corinne Kahn has already been asked to resign by the opposition, so she's obviously not a good candidate to replace Savia Buttle. And then suddenly it goes very dark in the ranks of, of the DP. And it's clear that with the current coalition, it would need to be a DP prime minister. What he could do to try to re-establish some trust into the government and into the institutions would be to not run again, to announce publicly that he would take the consequence. He could also, quite honestly, ask for forgiveness. Well, I was thinking that. Which he didn't do. (laughs) I think it would be rather good if he spoke about it, perhaps. I mean, you're welcome anytime, Xavier Bettel, on my show. I would be delighted to have you here to talk to you in a kind way, not an aggressive way, to talk through this issue and how you could turn it around for yourself, let's say. It was what I wanted to propose. He could go on air, he could go on the record and explain why he did it, how he did it. And quite honestly, he could simply, yeah, ask for that forgiveness. We all understand that Savio Buttle at age 26 was another Savio Buttle than at age 45, 46. But then again, we shouldn't forget he was already an MP by then. He was running three campaigns and he never needed the DEA for his professional work. And I think that's maybe what bothers me the most. It's something he didn't need, yet he wanted to get it. But to get it, he took a shortcut. Mm-hmm. And... And not an honourable one. And not an honourable one. So if he would have simply said, well, I don't need it, I don't do it. Or do it at a later date. I I would have been fine with that. Nobody would have asked of MP Xavier Buttle at age 26 to provide an DEA. He didn't need it professionally. He didn't need it politically. Why did he do it? And why did he take the shortcut? And that's the question I, I would need an answer to, to be able to maybe forgive him. Now, you've been one of the more outspoken député here on this issue, and I have read or heard some of the other responses from members of parliament, well-known people in Luxembourg. And it seems that a lot of people want to play safe because Luxembourg is a small country. I wonder if this leads to problems sometimes. Are people hiding what they feel inside? Are they not always honest in their opinions? Is there not enough conversation about the tougher issues. I can imagine in some countries, let's say the UK, an MP for such a thing would be absolutely destroyed. The media would have no, they would not be kind. (laughs) Well, it all comes down again to who would replace him. In other countries, normally leading majority parties have 
a huge pool of potential replacements for their leading people. Whether it's in Germany where the people were just waiting for some minister to slip up or in France or in the UK. There are MPs that are ambitious enough and full enough of themselves willing to take that job on. Isn't that a prerequisite for an MP? <laughs> You would say so, but I've got a feeling that in Luxembourg, some of my colleagues in Parliament are quite content where they are as backbenchers with no ambition whatsoever to change the world and with the only ambition to be re-elected. And if that's your only ambition, then better follow your leader. Well, that's a sad state of affairs. So you're saying, you're suggesting then that the reason Xavier Bettel is still in position and won't be pushed in any way to tackle this plagiarism issue is because there isn't anybody else who can step up to that mark. Probably there is a lack of qualified personnel in this majority and especially in the DP. And then obviously the realpolitik of a three-party coalition with one vote, a majority, makes it very difficult for anybody in that coalition to rock the boat. We've seen that with Carol Dieschburg, who had her affairs, Superdrexkisch, the affair Traversini, the affair Beckerisch surrounding an authorization for a crash. We've seen the same with Corinne Kahn, with the deaths, the COVID-related deaths in old age homes. Again and again, we've seen that the coalition had to circle the wagons and defend themselves as a coherent unit, whereas they are not a coherent unit. But that obviously makes it much more difficult for anybody in that group of the majority to ask for consequences. Because the first response would be, yeah, but we also protected your guy. Mm -hmm. So it's a tit for tat. Cover my back, I'll cover yours. Exactly. Well, okay, so that's the state of our politics at the moment. It's a little bit of a sad story. I mean, in your time sitting there since 2018, what have been the points? I mean, you've been there at an interesting time through COVID, etc. as well. What has heartened you? What do you feel has worked exceptionally well? And what do you think really needs to change? I'll start with the negative one to finish on a positive note. <laughs> What clearly doesn't work is to have honest exchanges of ideas. Parliament comes from parler, from exchanging ideas verbally. And you'd think that sometimes you could convince somebody by a good argument to vote a certain way. But in the end, in Luxembourg politics, it's the party leaders or the whips decide how you'll vote. And it doesn't really matter how the independent, the single MPs feel about an issue. Whether you agree or not, as an individual MP, you vote the way your party wants you to vote. For me personally, that's less of a problem given that we are only two MPs at this point. So it's much easier to rail against that than if we'd be in power. Maybe then I would see the light. What is clearly positive is that most, if not all of the MPs, clearly want the world to be a better place. They want Luxembourg to be in better shape. We don't agree on how that shape should look like or how we could achieve it. But I strongly believe that everybody wants us to be in a better shape, in a better position in the future. And I also see, and we've seen it during the COVID crisis, especially at the beginning, Parliament can work together across aisle when it's necessary. 
That's very nice to hear. That's nice. I'm glad you ended on a positive there. Since we're talking to a mostly expat audience where English is a mutual language, do you think that more of us who live here could be allowed to vote if we're not citizens yet? Uh, by which I mean we haven't become Luxembourgish yet because you need to have lived here for five years and have a certain aptitude with the language, which not all of us master. So do you think there'll ever be a change whereby we could be allowed to vote? Sadly enough, I can't make you any hopes given the political climate in Luxembourg. We've seen it again and again with petitions and with the referendum from 2015 where the electorate made it quite clear that they don't want that to happen. Personally, I find that very sad because I believe that we need to find new ways to be able to open participation to more people. So that's why what we propose would be to have a second chamber that could be elected. So instead of that infamous Conseil National des Étrangers, to have a truly second chamber elected by direct vote, the same way, maybe on the same date as Parliament. And that second chamber could have a consultative voice on every law that is being passed in Parliament. Not a blocking veto, that would go too far, I think, for the political climate that we have, but a way to keep people close to politics and engaged with politics and keep the debate across language barriers without the need to change the constitution, without the need to have any of those issues of double nationalities, double counting and so on. So that could be a way to reform the Conseil National des Étrangers into a truly deliberative body and that could be elected at the same day than, than Parliament through the same mechanisms with a direct a proportional vote, which instead of creating a, a group of people representing the non-Luxembourgers through NGOs and unions, I find that concept quite dated, I have to admit. I really like that idea of a second chamber. I think that's a fantastic idea. On that point, slightly laterally, thinking again of news across the waters, are any of the MPs lobbied? any of the deputy lobbied, do they receive payment from lobbyists in any way that you're aware of or just word of mouth? I'm not sure that anybody is directly paid. There might be instances, but I ignore who and how much money would change hands. In principle, they would need to declare that, but honestly, there are little to none mechanisms of control. What happens is that we are being contacted every day by people that want to push their agenda, whether it's um, for lobby organizations, as you could imagine, uh, or smaller NGOs here in Luxembourg that want to push their agenda, or want to be heard, or individual citizens that want to be heard. Who is a lobbyist? We had a discussion in Parliament, and for me, even scouting in Luxembourg would be considered a lobbyist. They are not paying us. They are inviting us twice a year for, for some some food and some drinks. So. Well, I saw that you <laughs> raised money for them internationally. Yeah, well, that's, that's for daughter. an NGO. That's, um, that's for an NGO I'm, I'm sitting on the board of. But the term lobbyist is very loaded. And I think we need to think more of representatives of special interests. And that might not necessarily be a bad thing. Because when I meet with Greenpeace or with UNICEF, I'm meeting with lobbyists. Then, at the same time, when I listen to the arguments of Greenpeace, I should also listen to the arguments of the other side. 
it depends on who that is based on the topic. But I'm always trying to have a balanced mix of whom I'm meeting with. Some MPs do the same, others don't. And so you have sometimes an imbalance and that obviously shows in the votes in Parliament. And all of this takes time as well. We're just moving on from that. Some of the work that you are involved with is carbon fit, carbon dioxide removal legislative proposal for Luxembourg and beyond. So tell us more about this, because this is a green innovation strategy. Yeah, so we know we are in a climate urgency. Nobody can hide that anymore. We've seen it in Luxembourg firsthand, so we should focus on solutions. We should not debate who is responsible. We should not debate how could we have made it better. We need to fix it. We all know that investing into renewables is one way to go. The problem is all that infrastructure building takes a lot of time. And if we are looking at the IPCC report, we see that we need to subtract carbon from the atmosphere. If we want to achieve our goal of 1.5 degrees, there are many ways to do that. We can build new forests, so we can plant trees. That takes a lot of time. We can desaturate the ocean, and then the ocean will take in more carbon. Again, takes a lot of time. And not great for the coral reefs. And it's not great for the reefs. And there are many ways where you can subtract carbon, but those natural carbon sinks are very, very slow. So what scientists and engineers are thinking about, and there are already some startups doing it, is direct air carbon capture. They have huge blowers where they push air through. And given that carbon dioxide is distributed equally across the globe, you have everywhere the same concentration. So it doesn't matter where you put those and you can simply extract the carbon dioxide from the air. So they're like carbon dioxide hoovers. Yeah, they are like vacuums. They are <laughs> literally hoovering up the excess carbon dioxide that we put in the air. But they would require energy to work. They require energy. So obviously you want to power them by green energy, by renewable energy. There is a current project in Iceland that is powered by geothermy. There are many ways to do it. What I've seen in the past, what worked was for solar a feed-in tariff. So that people are being paid to decentralized capturing solar energy. In essence, that's what a feed-in tariff for solar is. And so my mind went looking for a solution. Couldn't we apply that to direct air carbon capture? Lo and behold, there are people working on that. So I met up with international experts in that field, and we are currently running participative seminars where we are trying to figure out how such a legislative proposal could work in Luxembourg, but also across the world, so that we are building a prototype legislation that then can be pushed uh, through parliaments across the world wherever they think that uh, such an idea would be uh, worthwhile. That's really exciting. How close are you to getting it finished? So the process has started last week with the beginning of the COP26. Perfect And uh, we are aiming to get the legislative proposal for Luxembourg ready by the end of the year. Obviously, the getting it through Parliament will take a bit more time. Lobbying in my interest for such a proposal will take even more time. But we won't call it lobbying. We'll uh, call it. It's, uh, it's special interest. <laughs> uh, it's, it's in the best interest of the planet. And then finding the financing for it and, and all of that, obviously, see, it takes a bit more time. But the goal is really to use innovation and also to put Luxembourg as an innovative climate tech hub on the map internationally. Because instead of polluting our air by launching destroyed miners, <laughs> we could capture carbon from the air 
and thus really making a dent in climate change. Mm-hmm. Carbon dioxide being one of the greenhouse gases, but yeah, a rather large one of them. <laughs> Obviously, you could also try to capture methane. The problem there is that it's technically much more complicated and it's even much more complicated to um, modularize such a capture solution. So currently, scientists and engineers are opting to capture CO2, which allows us to earn a bit more time to become better. And one of the advantages is we all know trucks will not disappear overnight. Planes won't disappear overnight. So they need fuel. They will not run on electricity. We know that a long-haul trucker can't run on electricity at this development stage of batteries. A plane can't run, or at least a mid-range to long-range plane can't run on batteries. It's economically and ecologically not feasible. So they need fuel. The cheapest way would be to find a fuel that is CO2 neutral. And the advantage is if you capture CO2 from the air, you can transform that back into a synthetic fuel. That's a technology that's well known. It exists since about 80 years. And then you can reuse that fuel. You are recycling CO2 to run legacy industries on that. It helps you to reduce the carbon footprint of industries that currently have no viable alternatives. So there are ways to synthesize fuels. And what we need for that is carbon dioxide. So a very interesting future ahead in terms of technology for anyone interested in working in that field. RTL Original Podcast. You're one of the more computer savvy, computer literate deputy, I would say, given your background yourself. Just moving to another issue, Pegasus spyware. <laughs> it's a bit of a jump from carbon dioxide capture. But tell us what you know about the Pegasus spyware project developed by the Israelis and how governments, companies, individuals can protect themselves, how we can protect ourselves. Well, first of all, I would like governments not to buy spyware because everybody who buys software that is based on zero-day exploits, how they are called, so unknown security holes, is making the internet and every machine, every smartphone more vulnerable. We should lobby to have responsible disclosure and to fix the security holes instead of exploiting them. Sadly, there are groups like NSO, the makers of Pegasus, with a holding company in Luxembourg, and now blacklisted by the US Treasury. So that will be fun in the next uh, call between Asselborn and his US colleagues. <laughs> what we can do is update our computers and smartphones and tablets as quickly as possible to close security holes. What we can do is be aware that such software exists. The problem with Pegasus is that it's very sneaky. You don't even see when it's being installed. They can even turn your own so, microphone on. on yeah, so phone. actually what you get is, and that's the problem with Trojan horses in general, people claim they are being used to gather evidence in criminal cases. What they don't see is that at the same time when you can detect or gather evidence without being detected, obviously you can also plant evidence. So every evidence gathered on a cell phone that is infected with a Trojan horse, I could always claim legitimately that that was because of the Trojan. So we're actually undermining 
the rule of law when we are admitting into court evidence gathered by Trojans. So it would be better to use classical intelligence gathering, human surveillance, human intelligence, instead of trying to break into computers and smartphones that are being protected. We know that through metadata analysis, you can find way more and way more usable proofs for criminal activity, as an example, than through a Trojan horse. Getting it on the phone, exploiting it, it's very time-consuming, and in the end, it's not guaranteed to lead to a proper trial. In my opinion, we should simply stop using such software, looking into how can we make the world a safer place with the right tools and right material without compromising our own integrity. So what does the Luxembourg government use? So the Luxembourg government is um, really tight-lipped about it. Naturally. We asked multiple <laughs> questions in Parliament. We asked to have a committee that would look into that. We tried to really push all the buttons that we had. And finally, it was Xavier Butler who slipped up during a Luxembourg Times interview where he said, yeah, we are buying that or we bought that. By that, it was implied that it was Pegasus. Obviously, there was immediately a question addressed to the Prime Minister and he paddled a bit back by saying, yeah, I was speaking in general, but yeah, we have spyware. And now we have proof that even Luxembourg's little small Luxembourg is using spyware. And now the question arises, against whom? I remember a young Savi Buttle in Parliament when it came to data retention, where he said, even if you simply hit an MP, you can be subject to that surveillance. So is simply hitting me enough to merit the Trojan horse? I'm not sure about that. We need a political debate about when do we use such tools. And in my general idea, we shouldn't use them at all. This is opening up a whole other facet of conversation, in fact, because... I think for the general public, there's so much about it not understood yet, perhaps even by the government, because it's so deeply technical and there's so many potential consequences. The government communicates between themselves through WhatsApp. What do I need to say more? <laughs> We are speaking about, and, and, and rightly so, about IT security and protecting data. Our Ministry for Education uses Teams in schools and opens the whole directory up to everybody who has a login. So if I'd had a login for a Teams account in a primary school in Luxembourg, I could look up the names and email addresses of all the teachers and all the students that are currently enrolled in, in the Luxembourgish school system. Nobody cares about it. We send that data to the US, amongst other things. Nobody cares about it. We have GDPR for everybody except the Luxembourg government. The government themselves, as I said, communicates between themselves through WhatsApp groups. Hello, didn't they hear that there are global surveillance activities going on? Sometimes I'm really baffled by the naivety that Luxembourgish leading politicians have when it comes to digital issues. So who is looking after the cyber security of the government or Luxembourg in general? We have CIRCLE, we have CERT, we have the GovCERT. We have a lot of four-letter acronyms in Luxembourg. <laughs> in, in English, you often say, oh, yeah, one of those three-letter agencies. Well, in Luxembourg, <laughs> it's a, mostly a, a four or even a five-letter agency that is taking care of that. They are doing their best. They are sending out update notices. They provide you with a second smartphone. But 
in the end, it's that question that arose when Barack Obama became president and he didn't want to leave his BlackBerry in the office. In the US, the institutions pushed him to use a secure phone. But in Luxembourg, it's the politicians pushing the institutions or simply circumventing the institutions. And we are really in a, in a place where cybersecurity, we often talk about it. It's one but of the we big facets it, of education. But we rarely do it right. Well, it's another learning curve. I think in parallel to climate change, it's another big big pit for the future where we have to work very hard to climb out of it. But I suppose we're all buoyed up in Luxembourg by a, a sense of security in its smallness. We feel quite safe and secure. And sometimes perhaps we forget that we belong to the big bad world and that things can go wrong and that things can be traced and that not everything is safe. No, and, and obviously there are interests into knowing the position of our government before everybody else knows the position. We are negotiating at the same table as the 26 other EU member states. So the communication between government members influences European and thus global policy directly and thus thinking that nobody would care for what Luxembourg thinks or how Luxembourgish politicians act is really naive. Then trying to buy spyware, on the other hand, to be able to raise the lack as high as the big dogs in the European Union or in the world shows simply that they are aware that we are a small fish in a very large pond, but they are trying to be as scary as possible. So I don't really get what they want to achieve with that Janus-faced policy approach to cybersecurity, but maybe they don't know it either. That's a very nice Greek, after your little Greek holiday there, it's a lovely, a lovely little analogy there with the forward and backward facing Yana. It's very, very nice. I, I know that from my daughter's project on January 1. So what a lovely little reference there. Sven, you're doing very well. You're working hard. You're young, charismatic. You've got strong ideas. <laughs> Now, a few questions. Have you plagiarized any of your work in the past? Not that I know of, and I checked. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done... But, but I use quite liberally quotes from other politicians in my speeches, as most of us do, and normally we attribute it correctly, but sometimes the same quote has been used by more than one politician in the past, so it's sometimes difficult to find the right one to attribute it. Yes, the original source, yes. Like that I might not stand for your ideas, but defend them nonetheless. Not sure who really said it, and the same for Einstein's stupidity quote, where we are not really sure when and how it came to be. <laughs> Have you done anything we as the electorate, plus those of us who can't vote, should be concerned about? I'm a convicted uh, criminal. Oh, <laughs> for what? Um, for hacking. Um, ah. So, um, <laughs> We've just had this great big debate about cybersecurity and here we are. <laughs> so that's maybe why I'm speaking about that issue. In 2004, 14, if I remember correctly, I've been uh, convicted for intrusion into a secure database by the Luxembourgish government. All goes back to 2011, where I've been to the doctors 
for my medical, for my sports license. And I saw that there was a post-it on the laptop with username and a password, and I tried to connect to that. And I managed to, to enter into the database with 55,000 medical data sets <laughs> of Luxembourgish uh, people uh, doing sports. It doesn't sound like you tried very hard to get in there. No, all it took was taking a photograph of a post-it. There was no security whatsoever. First, I contacted the government to try them to change the password at least. After two weeks, I reconnected. That was why I've been sued afterwards. The second connection, not the first. They agreed that the first one was curiosity and uh, you need to be able to research security risks. Two weeks later, nothing had happened. Not even changing the password. So two weeks later, I reconnect and then I went to the press. Well, the press obviously made a bit bigger story out of that. And suddenly it was possible to change the password in less than a day. <laughs> so <laughs> We have an influence. We have a little influence you, now and you, again. You, you see that. And then finally they came to my house. They took away all my IT stuff. And that was 2011. I was still a student. So it was quite hard to do my thesis Oh, that, without access <laughs> this to is the computers. reason why. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't copy and paste because I simply had no material to do oh, it on. I see, now, I jo see. Jokes yeah, aside, yeah. <laughs> um, all that took a bit of time through the procedures. And finally, I got convicted for 500 euros of a 500 euros fine for uh, intrusion into a protected data system. I paid the fine. I learned from it that in the future I should directly contact the press because apparently it's the only <laughs> way to do. get something to change. But since then, my casier judiciaire nowadays is Vierge, so it's empty. I paid my fine, I've learned from it, and that's also why I'm clearly looking forward to protecting whistleblowers and why I'm trying to raise awareness for issues that impact a lot of people. <laughs> Thank you, Sven. <laughs> Right, so if you ever want to get elected to government or the highest role of the land, my final question... So Grand Duke? <laughs> of course. Can of you course get elected to Grand Duke? No, no, well, no. not yet, unless no, no. you're able to change those rules in Parliament. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you think you need to change the name of the Pirate Party? Well, we are pirates after all, aren't we? Um, <laughs> no, I don't think that changing the name would actually help our cause. What do other party names mean anymore? You have the DP, Democratic Party. Everybody is a Democratic Party. So that is like an oxymoron. It, it, you, you don't need to state the obvious. The CSV, Christian Social People's Party. Well, Christian, um, maybe social, the, the jury's out on that. And People's Party at less than 20% in the polls, Certainly not. LSAP, Luxembourgish Socialists Workers' Party. Well, there are no workers anymore since we changed the statute for the Statue Unique. So whom are they representing anymore? What does the name mean? No, that's a very I, I good point. It's the just... name is marketing and yeah, people uh, yeah. need to remember you. It is catchy. <laughs> and, and to give you a quote that I shamelessly steal from Pirates of the Caribbean. That's what I think of when I think of the Pirate Party. I think of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, you remember the first movie out of the, out of the trilogy or how many movies are there nowadays. Johnny Depp arrives with his sinking ship. He gets on land and he's being arrested by a British officer. And that officer tells him, you are the worst pirate I've ever heard of. And Johnny's answer is simply... But you've heard of me. 
Aha, okay. So we're doing an Oscar Wilde here where <laughs> any publicity is good publicity sort of thing. If I've, that was Oscar Wilde, I'm I've, not sure. I'll have to check that after, <laughs> afterwards. I'm sure for my quote. Yeah, um, yeah I'll have to do a bit I'm of research. I'm not sure who mind. said there's no bad publicity after all, but um, yeah. I'm going to have to Google that now. Um, it's better for politicians to be recognized and to have a name that people associate something with immediately. But do you think you can be taken seriously on a world stage with that? Well, in Iceland, the party is third largest force in parliament. In the Czech Republic, they now probably will enter the next government, except if they decide not to. So you're doing I well. I think you're you doing can be well. taken serious. And <laughs> Then again, while well, we are on radio or on your podcast, so you don't see me, but... He looks I'm smart. He's looking very really smart. not looking like a pirate. <laughs> no, he's looking very dapper. I can assure you, he's looking very well turned out. <laughs> Sven, have you got any other words of wisdom, any thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with? Hopefully nobody comes to me for words of wisdom. I'm, I'm still <laughs> looking for that wisdom myself. Sometimes I've got the feeling that in politics, a lot of the challenge is making it up as you go. And the best quality in a politician is to be able to admit that, but also to be making it up a bit quicker than all the others. Well, and so I'm life. trying to be quick. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. I mean, yeah, life is a succession of decisions and we hope our politicians can make good ones. We put our faith in you. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, to have like, if people would see me on the webcam or, or whatever, I would have the same color as the light on my microphone here, which is bright red by, for all those compliments. But thank you so much, Lisa, for those. It's really a pleasure to have you here and give our best regards from RTL today to your lovely family and especially a big cuddle to Mia. I'll do that. Absolutely. And good luck to you with your two girls. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're a little. Oh, yeah. Well remembered. Well remembered. Two girls. And I also have a dog since we last met. Yeah. And she, she's quite hard worked. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've met Fiji, so you know how it is with a dog. Then. I know. I, I do remember. But I think your dog is better than my dog in behaviour. Not sure. <laughs> we can meet and let them play together and we'll see I, who wins. Yeah, I think I could place a bet on this one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sven. Thank you. Thank you as well.